You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Under the Silver Lake. Come on in! I saw you spying on me earlier. No, I wasn't. Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. Found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages, from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Really think you're gonna find a hidden message in a pop song? One, two, three. Can't quite see it, but I'm close. Honey, how are you? Mom, I'm fine. Mostly fine. Um. Why do we assume that all of this information is what we're told it is? Maybe there are people out there who are more important than us, more powerful, communicating things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us. Yeah. Oh, you think that's weird? A little. Welcome to Purgatory. Good to be here. You're living in a carnival. Hoping to win a prize. What are you gonna win? Under the Silver Lake. All right, everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for Under the Silver Lake, and the story is as follows. When his beautiful, mysterious neighbor disappears without a trace, Sam tries to find the parties responsible, unraveling a string of strange crimes, unsolved murders, and bizarre coincidences in his East Los Angeles neighborhood. The film is starring Andrew Garfield and Riley Keough. It is written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. Joining me for this review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Beatrice Loiza. Hey, everyone. Cody Derricks. Happy 420. And Danilo Castro. Hey, everybody. Yeah, isn't it appropriate that we're reviewing this on 420? Because, yeah. oh, man, you want to talk about the one of the cinematic experiences uh, to light up to uh, for 2019. This, this, this could very well be it. <laughs> and, you know, we've been waiting a long time for Under the Silver Lake uh, to reach our uh, multiplexes ever since it premiered at Cannes last year. And A24 has had kind of a rocky release schedule with it where they keep pushing it back. They don't really seem to they know what to do with it. It supposedly got re-edited. Uh, it was released in the UK a while ago before it finally hit here in the US. But now it's finally here. We got a chance to see it. And it is it is something. It's a movie. It, it is definitely quite something. Um Definitely different than It Follows, which was David Robert Mitchell's last film. And dare I say, I I think I thoroughly enjoyed this, flaws and all, actually. Which, I do have a lot of flaws with this film to point out. And I'm sure some of you maybe are going to point them out more so uh, than I am. Because uh, I think this is a very divisive film. But just as far as unique 2019 movies, I think I will see this year. 
Uh, Under the Silver Lake is probably going to rank somewhere in my top 10 as far as just wholly bizarre, unique cinematic experiences. Not like top 10 favorites, but just in that this is the wacky, weird column here. (laughs) So enough from me. Let's hear from the rest of you. Josh Parham, let's start off with you. What did you think of Under the Silver Lake? Well, I walked away from this film not nearly as um, happy about it as you were, Matt. Um, I think that this movie has a lot of things on the surface that would be really compelling to me. I think that it reminds me of a lot of other noirs that kind of have a bit of a uh, eccentric twist to them. But ultimately, my big issue with this film is that nearly everything about the central mystery mechanics of it, I just found so uh, muddled and not compelling in the slightest. And what that ended up happening for me is that this movie just dragged across (laughs) its entire runtime of like two hours and what, 17 minutes or something like that. And it was kind of just, uh, it, it was really rough to get through this movie. And it felt like a movie that, seemed like it was trying to be very clever and very interesting in its mystery. And it just never really pulled it together for me. And despite there being some interesting things going on, ultimately I was kind of left unfulfilled by it. Okay. That's fair. Beatrice, what about you? Yeah, I, I'm like half, half split between like your opinion, Josh and yours, Matt. I, also found that the film really dragged on and on and it like induced ADD in me. I was just like, Oh man, another twist, another turn became eventually numbing. But I mean, I watched it last night, but since then and now I've really enjoyed thinking about it more than probably actually watching it. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, as for the high point of my experience in the moment of watching it, um, it was definitely, I, I really liked the comedy aspects of the absurdism and then Andrew Garfield's performance as deadbeat incel, I found kind of hilarious and weirdly familiar to some men that I know. Very pathetic, but amusing. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, Danilo. Uh, so I love film noir movies usually it doesn't even have to be all that great for me to kind of give it a thumbs up i'm kind of just a sucker for these tropes um like everybody else though this movie was tough to get through it felt longer than its runtime and i think while i was pretty interested in the in in the main mystery that ran through it um it, it was tedious um and i think the tedium got to me as we went on and on and on and some of the eccentric bits didn't really pan out too much for me so Overall, I can't say I was thrilled with this one, which was a sh- which was a shame because I was really anticipating this. Okay, Cody, I kind of have to agree with everybody else's sort of roller coaster. Am I liking this? Am I not? Is it dragging on? Is it self important? I I I had a I had a temperamental relationship with this movie. There were times <laughs> where I was really enjoying some of the, like Daniela said, the noir tropes. Those are always just kind of inherently fun to watch and recognize and kind of sit in that world. Um, and what Beatrice said about um, the character being a deadbeat incel is kind of where I landed on the movie. I think it's a, if you want it to be a pretty brutal takedown of those kind of, you know, lonely men we've all experienced at some point on the internet who are more, focused on secret societies and conspiracy theories than, you know, taking a shower and paying their rent. Mm-hmm. So if you want it to, the movie can have a message and kind of a, a, a 
a roast of that type of personality and hyper focus. But also, it's really easy to watch this movie and just kind of think, who cares? What's going on? Like, what's the point of this? So I actually want to uh, start off because there were a couple of different bullet points that each one of you brought up. But the first thing I want to jump off on is actually what you're bringing up there, Cody. And that is the uh, misogynistic uh, point of view, the male privilege, the sexism that uh, David Robert Mitchell is displaying through Andrew Garfield's character in this movie and how he is this paranoid conspiracy theorist who just believes through literally no signs whatsoever that this connection that he has with like Riley Keough for this brief evening is somehow tied to something greater and to his life purpose. And he has to find out what happened to her. Is it out of love infatuation? Who cares? Uh, and I love the exploration of that I, I, I really love that exploration into the psyche of, you're right, like these internet trolls and these people who don't believe anything that the news tells them or what just simple facts uh, tell them to be true. Like, for example, Captain Marvel's uh, domestic box office opening weekend gross. It's like, you know, you have all these people trying to dispute that it made as much money as it did. And this, this is like the most recent example uh, I could think of, or even the, the Mueller report, actually, uh, in the news lately, and just how everybody is always trying to, you know, d disregard the truth and create their own truths for themselves. I don't think the movie takes a definitive stance, though, on it. I think it just simply explores it, if that makes sense. Well, um, I kind of found it to be a bit of like a parody of a lot of these golden age of Hollywood movies where you have um, these like heroic Bogart-esque figures. And like oftentimes in these films, there is sort of a misogynist relationship to, you know, to the woman that are are the romantic counterparts or the femme fatales, whatever. Well, well, look no further than Riley Keough's entrance in the movie. She's blonde. She's wearing white. She appears in slow motion. There's classical music behind her. Right. And so it's a bit of a parody. I mean, like, it's the modern day version of that. But instead of this handsome trench coat wearing, I don't know, classic Hollywood figure, it's smelly Andrew Garfield in a hoodie. <laughs> and, and to go off of that. And I feel like a lot of noirs, I haven't unfortunately seen as many noirs as I would like to, but in the big ones, usually it's a detective hired to find a girl or follow a girl. And in this, he kind of tasks it upon himself and makes himself the important like defender of her and her guardian almost. And I think that's another way to look at the movie is it's a, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but in the end, you just got to leave women alone. <laughs> like, dude, maybe she really doesn't want you to find her. And that's what the landlord says at the very beginning. And, you know, it kind of ends up being true. But then also, too, besides that, um, we do get – I'm going to give a little bit of spoilers here. I'm not going to go full tilt into it, though. But, like, we do understand in the third act why he's being so driven to do this. Uh, the movie takes a long time to reveal it. And it's not even so much that I think that he was like in love with her or anything like that, but he's going through his own form of insecurity and uh, male uh, toxicity through his past relationship with his ex-girlfriend. And this is a guy who's clearly defining his life through his relationship with uh, this woman who dumped him and he can't seem to move on. He's hoping that she'll take him back. And he goes off on this wacky, crazy adventure to like try to somehow bring his life some form of meaning again. And as we're watching it, 
I think we are supposed to look at him as pathetic and that this entire quest is completely meaningless and that he really maybe should be going back to what society is telling him to do through the structures that are in place, which are get a job, pay your rent, and do the best that you can to not only live but survive. What you're doing is completely ridiculous. Man, you know what, though? I agree that the movie is sort of working with that framework but i also do think the movie expects you to be invested somewhat in uncovering what's going on or at least like kind of be in the same framework of being kind of excited on the discovery of things and i was just never there like yeah the movie may be kind of in the perspective of this character but i find this character to be just so loathsome and <laughs> unlikable but i think that's by design now right well if it if that is the case that it's by design then it's a terrible design because why would i want to be stuck with a horrible character that i really don't have any connection with for more than two hours and and the inciting incident of his initial relationship is there's nothing there like the, they spend one day together and that is the jumping off point for us to go through this story and i found nothing to attach myself to with his entire journey really and i agree that at the end it starts to get a little bit more introspective but i wish that had been applied a little bit more thoroughly throughout the rest of the film and that's why for me i just never really could connect with it yeah i kind of agree with what you're saying there josh because even and i think that's why i had kind of a mixed response to the movie because yeah and i i think the the thing we're looking at here about how it's about, you know, you need to focus on the real world, not stop and, you know, not follow these crazy conspiracy theories. I think there is that in the movie, but at the same time, again, a little bit of a spoiler, he ends up being correct. There is something going on here. So it kind of also wants us to look at what he's doing and go, Oh, well, I guess he was right the whole time. Like there's something to uncover here. So it's a little bit unclear as to which side the movie's falling on. Not that movies need to, you know, pick a side necessarily, but still. See, now I was really worried that the film was not going to give an answer to the central mystery. Because actually, I would have hated the film a little bit more. I found it to be so much more interesting on a thematic level that there actually does turn out to be something going on, that all of his conspiracy theories did turn out to be true. But then the the film kind of leaves him on this note of, okay, now what? That you achieved your goal. Now what are you going to do? Right. He's about to get kicked out of his apartment still. You know? Exactly. And re- reality is still going to kick him in the face no matter what. Uh, I, 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 think, I think the film sometimes does contradict itself a little bit with its uh, thematic messaging. Uh, there are a couple of, uh, couple of scenes where he talks to a couple of supporting characters who I do believe give the film the context that it needs that we should be looking at it through maybe um i'm not and i'm not saying like you should like i'm forcing you guys to view it a different way than you do i'm saying that this is how i interpreted it the existentialism uh aspect i'm sorry not existentialism the nihilistic proponent of this movie is what i gravitated more towards than the actual character i thought the character was a piece of shit i i I did loathe him i did (laughs) not like him at all i didn't find the mystery compelling but when you have um uh, what's his name from Black Klansman? Tover um, Grace. Grace. When you have Tover Grace saying stuff like, it's silly wasting your energy on something that doesn't matter and we crave mystery in life because there is just simply none of it left. Those are the kinds of statements and questions that I love to think about so much in examining this wacky thing that we call life. And I think that was the aspect in the movie that made me 
drawn to it more so than the, the mystery, the character, everything else that was going on. Well, I think nihilism is always a big part of film noir, but but usually there is, I would say, a either a more thematic kind of arc to hinge it on or a more compelling mystery. And I think in this case, there was neither of that. So it was you're kind of just left with the nihilism as opposed to sort of a, a narrative to support it. And maybe that made it a little tougher. Um, and also, I do like one of Topher Grace's lines. Weird is it weird that any to anyone else that he was barely in the film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his first scene is like in shadow. I didn't know it was him until the second scene where they're flying that drone, and I was like, "Wait a minute!" Yeah, hi, Topher. <laughs> hi, Topher. But, but he did he did say a line where he said, uh, "We crave history because there's none left." Yeah, and I like that as sort of a thematic kind of uh, blanket for the film. But I, I like the sentiment. I think more than I like the execution. Like like the rest of us here. Yeah, he also has another line, too, that he says that I, I actually might, might be the funniest line in the movie for me, maybe, is when he says, Jesus wouldn't hide a message in a message. <laughs> I, and I know that he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about the, the leader of the band uh, mm-hmm. who's also named Jesus. But I still found that to be uh, kind of humorous. And, and that's another aspect of this movie, too. Like some people have tried to say that, oh, it's got comedic elements. I didn't really find this movie funny, like at all, ever, really. Did, did anyone hear I found Andrew Garfield pretty funny, but mostly in terms of just like making fun of that sort of man. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that was mostly in the first half, mm-hmm. which I also found to be the more like cohesive half. So I don't know. It definitely veered towards more sad, funny in the second half. I will admit that when the central mystery does get resolved and Garfield does get that, uh, answer he's always been looking for. It may not be the answer that he or the audience wants, but it is an answer. I do think the movie should have ended right then and there. I agree. Mm-hmm. It goes on for, what, another 12 minutes or so after that? Yeah. Oh, wow, I completely forgot about it. <laughs> that, that, that that literally kind of destroyed me because I started asking myself, I don't need to know what he's going to do. I don't need to be shown uh, the fallout of his rent payments or anything. That, like... Your whole movie is built around this mystery. You've given us the answer. Now, like, just end it and let the audience walk away with the, the asking their own questions. Don't tell us anymore. And I do agree that in terms of um, the pacing and so on and so forth, that was my biggest issue of all was that third act. I actually kind of liked the denouement after he inherently solves the mystery because it gave us another, without giving too much away, it shows another situation where he interacts with somebody who is just content ignoring or just living life and ignoring the seemingly seeming mysteries around them. And I think he needs a moment of that additional perspective after he solved the mystery to kind of not tie it all together, but really just hammer home the idea of like, dude, just live your life. Mm-hmm. Now, Josh, um, I'm actually a question directly for you, uh, because I wanted to ask you this off air, but I didn't get a chance to. Uh, one of your favorite films last year was American Animals, which did also touch upon a similar theme of feeling like there's um, something greater to life than the structures that are put in place for us to ultimately live our lives. And I, I was just curious in just in terms of comparing how Under the Silver Lake conveyed it and how American Animals uh, conveyed it, uh, just what you thought about that. Well, I think American Animals does a really great job in showing the lives of these young men that are quite empty and looking for something greater. But I also think it sticks the landing better than Under the Silver Lake does. I think that's a movie that really understands that 
of how to really get you into the psychology of these guys and then see how uh, sort of fruitless what they're chasing really is and get to a better thematic conclusion. Whereas this film, I, I, I do kind of like that ending that we're kind of talking around and also kind of not talking around. But I think what really where this movie fails is that in order for that ending to really land, you kind of need to be invested somewhat in the journey along the way. And when that subversion happens, if you are invested, then it's like, oh, then comes this moment of really great introspection. But this movie never really does that. This movie never takes the time to get you invested in the pieces leading up to it. And because of that, most of it was just really empty to me. And honestly, Matt, the movie that this reminded me of was not really American Animals. It was Inherent Vice. Me too. Mm, yeah. And I did not like Inherent Vice, which broke my heart as a people. I fan. actually don't like Inherent Vice either. To oh, you yeah. guys are crazy. I know. I disagree. I, I'm sorry. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm in the middle. <laughs> I, I've watched it. I've watched it twice. Uh, you know, I saw it in theaters and I watched it most recently uh, within the last year, I know, to give it another shot. And every single time I watch it, I just find myself just drifting off while I can't I can't I don't know what it is about that movie but it just it puts me like in a haze and a fog and I just kind of drift to sleep wow <laughs> see yeah. I kind of like that part of it I'll talk about another movie on a review about another movie but I like that and kind of similar to this if you just let the movie kind of wash over you in a way mm-hmm. I, I think that's a much more enjoyable way to watch I, these types of movies yeah I think that movie is fantastic I think yeah, that's a whole nother episode. We'll get into that. We're going to focus on this one. But <laughs> this, this movie actually reminded me in terms of the wacky, random, okay, like ha, where, what, where did that come from in the script? Uh, this actually reminded me more of Big Lebowski at times. I had that down in my notes too. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a classic neo-noir, you know, it's based on the big sleep. So that makes total sense. Exactly. That's funny that you say that about the big sleep because- like so much of this movie, even the fact that it's so narratively incohesive, I feel like it had to be intentional to an extent. I mean, because so much of it just feels like, I don't know, intentional sure. insertion yeah. of like random clues and like random divergent plot points. And like, like when you think, right. And when you think of the big sleep in particular, I mean, a lot of these neo-noir or these noirs rather from the time, they actually didn't make much sense. I mean, the big sleep in particular was notorious for discarding its its narrative cohesiveness cohesiveness for the sake of literally just getting more screen time for its two leads. Mm-hmm. That's why the movie doesn't like if you go through like scene to scene, it doesn't actually make much sense. That's, <laughs> but it yeah. still resonates with a lot of people just, you know, through sheer performances and I don't know. There's other reasons why people like it. <laughs> and, but and, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, I just was going to say Under the Silver Lake is like the shell of that. Mm. But I mean, for the sake of what, I guess. I would say Under the Silver Lake is is sort of, to, to go back to the Big Lebowski and Inherent Vice point, part of that subsect of sort of, uh, I guess, stoner noir. Um, you could also throw in Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye as sort of sure. easier, more abstract takes on the genre. Um, but I think, I think this film doesn't succeed where those other three at least to me personally, obviously other people. Um, but the, the, the abstractions and the sort of detours, I think don't, I feel like you feel sympathy for the lead in those other films, Lebowski, uh, yeah. Doc's Portello and Inherent Vice. This of course. one is a little tougher to get on board. And I think there's a lot of 
nastier bits. I don't want to get into the specifics, but there's lots of things that are kind of off-putting about this film in a way oh, that yeah. I don't feel like helps the overall experience. I actually want to talk about that aspect of it because this is definitely one of the, if not the biggest flaw of the movie for me uh, and stopped me from holistically loving it, actually. I really, really, really could not stand stomach was so off-put by just how incredibly sexist the movie could be at times, which is a theme that I don't mind if you write it into your movie and, you know, you have your character portrayed uh, that way. But I think this movie just went too far with it at times, where every single female character in the movie has to get naked, has to have sex with him, doesn't really have a well-defined character of any kind whatsoever, uh, there's one early like sex scene, you know, that Andrew Garfield has where it just seems to go on forever for me. And I, I just like all throughout, I kept saying to myself over and over, like, could they have could David Robert Mitchell have found other ways to convey what he wants to convey about toxic masculinity without just going so far with this? Because it really was uh, deeply discomforting at times. Yeah, I, I had a very similar uh, train of thought watching it where I went back and forth because it was like. Oh, they're really not portraying female characters great in this. But like, you know, also the supporting male characters don't really get to do anything. But then again, the female characters always taking their clothes off. But then again, that's like, you know, not that they would do this in the 40s, but, you know, classic noir uh, tropes of having, you know, the femme fatale and the innocent. So I just kind of went back and forth a lot on that and ultimately ended kind of landed kind of similarly in terms of like, yeah, this seems this could have been a little bit more tastefully written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the movie does go back and forth in indulging in those tropes and trying to subvert them and it doesn't always succeed in the latter and i think that's the unfortunate thing is when you don't succeed in your subversion it then just feels like you're constantly just wanting to use these tropes without any real um kind of effective use of them and I think the movie tries its best to get away from the damaging effects of it, but ultimately I don't think the movie really rids itself of that kind of male gaziness of it uh, throughout the whole movie. I mean, it, David Robert Mitchell hammers the, the the point of that so far that he even has the character looking at his neighbor with binoculars when He's not that far away. Like, he doesn't actually need binoculars to look. <laughs> but just in terms of, like, you know, symbolically portraying, oh, guys, look, it's the male gaze. You know, it's just like, oh, we get it already. We, we we understand. And that's hammered home in the uh, the montage of kind of, oh, look at all the sexual uh, subconscious messages in advertising, which is nothing really new. That's not oh, an no. amazing no. discovery. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's – um. In the in the film's poster itself, the word "sex" is written in the girl's uh, hair, in the uh, as she's falling into the water. It, so there's subliminal messaging everywhere. <laughs> you know, it kind of reminds me of it's super juvenile, but like how in high school we'd be like, "Oh, there's like sex messaging in the Disney movies." How mm -hmm. edgy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, you know, the film is trying to get to a point of where. Yeah, people probably do put hidden messages into virtually anything and especially in art itself. So when he's listening to the music and trying to decode a secret hidden message, this movie just leads us down a path of if you if you want to believe that it's there, you're going to just keep on searching and searching until you find something that just makes sense. But at the end of the day, does it really make sense? I mean, to the outside perspective, all of us that are watching it, it definitely does not make any sense. 
Um, but then there's something to be also said about are we prisoners in society structures that have been put in place for us? And is this guy who's following his own conspiracy theory, as long as he's not hurting anyone, as a character says to him at one point, should we just let that person be and just let them continue to do what it is that they're doing because it makes them happy? Is that what it's saying, though? Because there's a scene where Garfield's character meets, I don't I don't know if he has a name or not, the the, the jingle writer? that. Uh... Oh, the songwriter. I think that's... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean... That was, you know, for me, that was where the movie, I was like, okay, this was the make or break moment. I was going along with it, but that scene is so bizarre. And it yeah. so, I just, I, I still don't really know how to process that scene. I, yeah, I felt like that scene, like, I thought that was, at the time, I was like, oh, this is what this movie means. It's like, culture is just like recycled over and over again, and nothing's new. This movie is um, just an example of the fact that you know, our movies are just like how they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that wasn't the end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it I doesn't mean, really I go will... back to that theme as hard as it yeah. does in that one scene. So I felt like they, they got rid of that theme and then moved on or something. Yeah. But, you know, I will admit that that to me is the scene that honestly was my favorite in the movie. And yeah, I think, I think mine too. Yeah. I will give you the point that in the whole context, it doesn't really ever amount to that much. But in the moment, I was sort of feeling like, okay, this is sort of like it being weird and eccentric and wanting to have all these themes about culture and society. And it actually kind of working for me. And I don't really know why in that scene in particular just sort of worked for me, whereas everything else didn't really. But in the it moment- It was the songs. Yeah, like, it was, you were won over by the songs. <laughs> I, I, I guess, and just that dude's weird performance was just so encaptivating, like nobody else really in the movie was doing. And I kind of felt like that was the tone that I wish the rest of the film had followed. And it, it comes to a very bizarre ending, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Yes, that yes. kind of ripped me out of the whole tone of that scene. But it is the one moment where I sort of found the wavelength to enjoy before getting out of sync with it again. I I think for me, that's where pacing becomes an issue because I think to your point, Josh, I think the scene would have had that effect on me more. So if it came towards the end of the film, mm-hmm. when we had a little more time to build to it, because you're right, kind of uh, taken out of context, it is kind of an interesting scene and it could point towards a more interesting direction, but maybe it just came too early for me or I, I don't know. That moment of uh, shocking violence, too, at the end of that scene is yeah. like it's the only moment of it in the entire film where I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is the guy that directed It Follows. <laughs> and that made me kind of feel like, oh, is this actually happening? Because nothing mm-hmm. really comes of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, brings me back to I, I have these random notes written down from my viewing of the film and. I, I don't know if you guys tried to do this. I don't know if you guys, when you watched it, allowed the mystery to just take you on the ride or if you were also actively trying to solve the mystery along with the character. I was trying to actively solve it at first and then I gave up at a certain point because when you're writing down notes that say Signs of Infinity, 751, Purgatory, The Hobo Guide, <laughs> Famous Faces of Actors on a Wall, Beware of a Dog Killer, What? Edibles, James Dean, The Homeless King, The Backstreet Boys, What the Fuck? At a certain point, <laughs> I just had to like throw my pen down and just say to myself, okay, somebody's going to write a really, really, really good essay about this movie someday and it's not going to be me. <laughs> 
mean, I don't think all those things will actually lead to anywhere. Just like in any actual investigation, there's going to be clues that are truly nothing, that are just coincidences or completely not tied to the case at all. So I, I think that is I, I, I kind of watched it just letting it wash yeah. over me, like I said before. But there's so many eccentric moments in this movie that I, I, I kind of do believe that there is that there that there are some really creative people out there that if they just want to take uh, I'll just throw a random thing out there. If they want to take the scene where the squirrel falls out of the tree and lands on the concrete, if they want to write an entire 1000 word you know essay on what that moment symbolically means, that is ultimately what the main character is. And if, like I said before, if you're looking for meaning in this movie, I think it's there, depending on who you are and what it is that you're looking for. I have to admit, though, that for myself personally, I don't think there really is much meaning in this film, except for one quote uh, that this movie reminded me of. And I'm going to say the quote in full. Uh, it is from another movie that I think touches on a lot of themes that this film does, and that's uh, Fight Club. And the quote that I was reminded of while watching this, especially because of the song Where Is My Mind, uh, it's when that scene happened. When when Where Is My Mind started getting played on the piano, that's when I said to myself, oh my God, Fight Club. Oh my God, this the, these movies might be connected. My conspiracy theory brain just started going haywire. But then I realized it's, you know. Anyway, here's the quote. Uh, there is no great war. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great war is our lives. That line right there, I think is obviously the point of the movie fight club but i also think it is the point of under the silver lake if you want it to be the point of under the silver lake <laughs> do i sound crazy I, I oh my god i sound weird don't i <laughs> does that sound weird yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, i think the movie does work with a thesis of this mystery can mean something to you or it ultimately will mean nothing and i <laughs> I just feel like you don't need two hours and 17 minutes to tell me that. <laughs> I will I, agree I guess, with you on that. I guess that's just ultimately where I come down with it is that it's like, I get it, that this dude is obsessive and he's going through all of these conspiracy theories and ultimately it might not ever amount to anything. But if it doesn't ever amount to anything, like if the mystery is not meant to be that compelling, then I should be really invested in at least the charms of this character and, and the world that he's in. But I'm, I, at least for me, I was never really pulled into that world and not really identifying with any of the characters or the, the surroundings of them left with a very uncompelling mystery just meant everything in the movie was just like being rejected by me because nothing was really there for me to latch on to. Yeah. I think, I mean, I see a world in which this movie just has several theses and they can all coexist or you can just go with one. Um, but I also kind of like, I don't really ascribe much meaning to it, but like the experience in and of itself, it was just so stuffed with like pop culture and like film references. Like I was talking to my partner about this and he actually compared it to the Lego movies how they're just like stuffed with cultural references and witty quips. I mean, they're obviously very different, but just like that sensation of being like overrun by different elements. Mm. Um, I would read that essay. I would love to read that essay. <laughs> well, no one's written it, so it's <laughs> free for all. <laughs> I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a declaration right now. I think Under the Silver Lake is going to be a cult masterpiece in like 20 years. 
I do. Because I think there's going to be crazy people that are going to watch this movie and they're going to find something about it. Like one tiny little thing like, oh, why, why are they barking like dogs? You know, and, and, and they're going to examine that. And they're going to try to, like, tie it into other aspects of the film and then, you know, try to tie it back into film history or advertising or pop culture, whatever. And it's going to keep this movie in our subconscious. Like, I don't think this movie is going away anytime soon. I don't think you can make a film this indulgent and this out there without it connecting with (laughs) at least a small group of people. That's true. I agree. I I think people... There will be a cult following. I think there already is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, with that said, final thoughts, grades out of 10, Oscar potential. Josh Parham, we'll start with you. Any final thoughts on the film that we did not talk about? Um, no, I feel like I kind of covered it all. It's a movie that I really feel like just does not have much, many things that are compelling in it. And the fact that it also just drags so much is really... I think that's like the nail in the coffin for me. Uh, However, if I do want to kind of wrap everything up, at least on somewhat of a positive note, um, really great last shot of Andrew Garfield. I'll give it that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is true. (laughs) Gray would be a four out of 10. Okay. All right. Beatrice. Right. So I, like I said in the beginning, I have enjoyed talking about it. I am going to think about this for a while, but I mean, Watching the film, I <laughs> was not that fun. Um, something I guess that we didn't touch upon. He definitely had a bigger budget. There were some really beautiful set pieces, and just it was beautifully shot in, in, at times. Um, I was a big fan of his camera work. You were, weren't? I, I was a big fan of his camera work. Yes, I very much liked. Um, I don't know if I liked the visual aesthetic of the film that he decided to go with in terms of the blown out highlights and the colors and such. But I really, really liked his use of camera movement a lot. Yes. I I also found it uh, visually compelling when I wasn't just like distracted. Um, But I mean, that also, there's also something to be said about maybe he should have had a budget restriction. Maybe it wouldn't have gone so haywire. (laughs) Mm. Um, Any, in any case, uh, I'm, I'm pretty mixed, so I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. Okay. Cody? Um, I'm also fairly mixed, but I would ultimately land on a 6 out of 10 because I would say I would give it a thumbs up if I had to choose a binary. Um, in terms of things that we haven't touched on, the, the only thing I wanted to mention was I kind of <laughs> hate that this works on me, but I always enjoy a movie set in L.A. that is so reverential to Hollywood and just features a lot of just references and stuff. I just... You know, as a film nerd, that's just always fun to watch. This one especially seemed fond of Hitchcock. Like, there's a really prominent <laughs> grave marked Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. He has posters <laughs> all over. And there's an opening scene where he's, not opening, but towards the beginning of the movie where he's following somebody in a car that was very reminiscent of Vertigo. Mm-hmm. And those things just are just, you know. With the binoculars. Right. Well, the when he's in the car, yeah, and following those girls, it was like, um when uh, Jimmy Stewart is following Kim Novak around in the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vertigo. Yep. Yeah. So ultimately, I would, again, land um, positive 6 out of 10. I really liked the score and the art direction. Um, is it a fully satisfying movie? No. Is it worth watching? Yes. Cody, you've convinced me to change it to 6 out of 10. <laughs> oh, shit. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because like, I, think, I think I do lean a millimeter into the positive. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and uh, Danilo? 
So I also am a bit of a sucker for the classic film references. I did like that aspect of the film. Uh, I liked little things that Mitchell did, like the detective always kind of being the pariah among like the society that he mingles in. And, and Garfield's character smells like a skunk. And everybody points that out. <laughs> yeah. I like little things like that. I thought that was clever and sort of uh, 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 referencing it without being too on the nose about it. But overall... Those are just things kind of on the edges. Uh, the the main piece, the center of it, isn't something I can really get with, unfortunately. Uh, I am going to give it a 4 out of 10. Uh, and then some other things that we just didn't talk about. Um, I found the Owl's Kiss, or the embodiment of the Owl's Kiss, to be genuinely frightening. <laughs> that if I ever saw that in my own home, I would scream bloody murder. Uh, <laughs> so that was very entertaining for me at times. Uh, you know, this film has a bit of everything. It's got comedy, it's got horror, it's got grisly violence, it's got mystery, it's got animation at, at, at two points, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this movie is the kind of thing that so much is thrown at you and all these different references and like I was saying before, I think the nihilistic questions that the film was putting out there uh, that that's why i think more often than not this film did work for me and i would say traditionally speaking because it still worked for me despite all the flaws i would normally go six out of ten the only reason why i am going to bump it to a seven is because i am going to give some credence to the fact that i honestly do believe that this is the kind of movie that david uh, robert mitchell has made that uh is going to endure and uh, live on. And it, I think there's something to be said for that. I think that there is something to be said for this. He's made a movie that people are not going to just see as a movie of the month and forget about in even a year's time. Because let's face it, um, Josh, myself, Denise, literally everybody actually on this podcast right now, I'm sure we've all seen at least one movie in 2019 that we either thought, oh, okay, that was all right. Or we thought it was awful. And to be honest, <laughs> we probably don't even remember anything about it now. So... I think Under the Silver Lake is something that won't leave my mind anytime soon for all of its positives and all of its negatives. And believe me, those negatives, uh, they're the kind of negatives that it does not make me want to watch the film again. Like, I I, I really don't want to rewatch uh, Andrew Garfield interacting with these female characters again because it just really just made me so uncomfortable at times. Uh, and I don't want to endure the almost two and a half hour running time again for what ultimately for me felt like a minimal amount of payoff. What I will endure is I will endure reading other people's takes on the film, discussing the film with other people, watching a video essay that maybe gets done on YouTube for eight minutes or whatever it is at a time, because I do think that there is a lot that this film has to offer in terms of uh, its thematic conversation questions and also to um, some of its visual references and themes. So ultimately, seven out of ten and... Oscar potential? No. (laughs) No. Huge no. What a world that would be. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, God, no. No. Absolutely not. Oh, man. Well, I don't know if A24 did the right thing in terms of just burying this movie as they have. I think that if they had given it somewhat of a decent release, I think that the film, you know... Yeah, but then again, I think back on it and I say to myself, well, the fact that they're not giving it a decent release is probably going to lead to a lot of people when it gets released on uh, 
I, I always say video. Like things don't get released on video anymore. <laughs> like yeah, when it gets when, when it gets released and people do get to widely see it, I, people will feel like they quote unquote discovered it. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there's going to be an attachment for some people. Like I could see this being for uh, young, like you know, early twenties you know, film students or whatever it might be. I could see this being the kind of movie that they watch and they, you know, they just get so enamored with messages in films and, you know, uh, artistic expression and, you know, trying to look for symbolism and that leads them down the rabbit hole to other classic film noirs. So... That's true. If it's hopefully on the film noir, that's not a that's not a terrible thing. <laughs> no, that is what we call a silver lining. <laughs> <laughs> a silver I'll lining a under silver a silver lake. Hey! We all make the same joke at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and one last thing, I do think the score by Disaster Piece is genuinely great. Yeah, it's great. It and is so good. different from their it work, and it follows. It might be my favorite uh, film score of the year so far, just because of how classic throwback it sounds at times. I really, really loved it. It's really good. Okay. Uh, with that said, Josh Parham, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Beatrice? You can find me on Twitter at B.L.Wiza. Cody? You can follow me everywhere at CodyMouser91 and check out my horror movie podcast, Halloweeners. Find us at Halloweeners Pod. And Danilo Castro? You can find me on Twitter at Danilo S. Castro. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Under the Silver Lake here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Acast, and also on CastBox and Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate any feedback you can leave us, plus a five-star rating. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you can get some very exclusive podcast content from us, including an upcoming review of Sicario, and our review that is ongoing of Game of Thrones Season 8 with more to come. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time. Next time.